You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We were out for a walk with my husband's dogs this weekend. Well, actually, one of them belongs to my husband. The other belongs to my husband's boyfriend. It's complicated. We're complicated. Dogs aren't. They like to go for walks. So do gay men. We were made for each other. Anyway, we left the house before it got dark. And by the time we were coming home, it was dark. And we had two options. Stay on the street, a.k.a. the long way home. Or head through the park, a.k.a. the shortcut. We took the shortcut. The park near our house is kind and notorious. Volunteer Park is in what was once Seattle's wealthiest neighborhood, a street nicknamed Millionaire's Row, dead ends in the park. There's a lovely little art museum, Seattle Asian Art Museum, a famous sculpture, a big marble sphinctery thing called Black Hole Sun. But it's not the museum or that one particular hole that made Volunteer Park notorious. It's the zombies, the dick zombies. Big zombies are like regular zombies in some ways. Your classic movie zombies, your shuffling zombies, the kind of zombies you can get away from if you just keep moving. But dick zombies don't want to eat your brains. They want to eat your dicks. Mm, dicks, delicious dicks. Dick zombies, or guys who have sex in parks after dark, are the reason Seattle parks are closed at night. All of them. 25 years ago, the city shut all the parks down after 10 p.m. in order to keep the dick zombies out of one park. And it didn't work. For half the year, it gets dark in Seattle after 4 p.m., closing the parks after 10 p.m.? Yeah, no, the dick zombies are still there, waiting behind trees in the dark, hungry for dicks. Well, I've never been tempted. I do like knowing the dick zombies are there. It says something about the triumph of the human spirit or maybe the irresistibility of dick or both. But I was surprised when a dick zombie stepped out from behind a tree in the dark the other night. I almost had a heart attack. Scared me to death. Then we saw another and another. And I don't know why I thought the dick zombies would be at home, but I did. So my guard was down, which is why I let out a little scream when the first dick zombie shuffled out from behind a tree in the near pitch blackness. Needless to say, for a dick zombie, a scream kind of kills the mood. Dick zombies prefer to conduct their dick zombie business in silence. They don't want to draw attention to themselves, just dicks. I was equal parts comforted and alarmed. It was similar to the comfort I felt when the cherry tree in our front yard exploded into bloom. Hey, life goes on. But the alarm I feel when someone who isn't wearing a face mask squeezes past me in the supermarket. Dude, what the fuck are you doing? I wanted to shout, hey, you guys, this isn't okay while at the same time pausing to recognize my privilege. Toilet paper, canned soups, dicks, we're stocked up. And I understand there's only so long people, human beings, can go without contact or sex. And hey, maybe if a particular dick zombie was practicing social distancing and living alone and working from home and having all their groceries delivered, it would be safe for that particular dick zombie to meet up with another dick zombie who was doing all those same things. But failing that, yeah, this is not okay. It's not safe. You can't maintain a safe social distance. You can't stay six feet away from someone while you're eating their dick. That said, I think we all recognize that this can't go on forever. We're going to have to figure out sex in our new reality. But we haven't figured it out yet. 
But for now, dick zombies, and I say this as a fan, an admirer, don't eat the dicks. Maybe stand six to ten feet away from each other and jack those dicks off. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, Diana from Studio Friction joins us to talk about creating kink communities. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. Joelle Nadi joins us to talk about her new book, The Monster Under the Bed, about introversion, depression, sex, romance, everything. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a quarantine sex story. The um, other day, my boyfriend and I um, were both rock climbers, and in our state, we're allowed to recreate outside, and there's a climbing area very close to our houses that nobody ever climbs at except us. And so we headed out there and to do some climbing, and I uh, got too hot to climb. And so he started kissing me and taking off my... He took off my climbing harness and then took off my clothes and then he puts my climbing harness back on. So, and then he proceeds to suspend me. Um, and then he went down on me and then we had sex like that. And it was pretty fun and wild and really beautiful out in nature. And, um, this climbing area is pretty special to us because we recently put up a new climb out there and named it Quarantine in honor of the term that I believe you coined and the fact that we are now quarantines. So thanks for the inspiration. Thank you so much for sharing. And I don't mean to be pedantic during a pandemic, but if you were suspended, didn't he technically go up on you? We're looking for your quarantine sex stories to start the show every week, literally with a bang. If you have a good quarantine sex story, give us a call 206-302-2064 and share it. And we may open next week's show with yours. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight woman in my mid-30s living in a big city on the East Coast. Um, A few months ago, I ended a two and a half year relationship. During the time I was in that relationship, I was introduced to a guy who recently moved to my city as a work contact. Uh, I had met him in person a number of times, always in a professional and friendly context. I thought he was cute, and we seemed to have a lot in common. Uh, But since I wasn't available, I didn't think more of it. Since my breakup, I've been thinking about him a lot more. We've been in touch more often in the past couple of months in a friendly way, and we even went out to dinner together. It was a nice restaurant on a Friday night, but it still had more of a friend-not-date vibe to it. I'm interested in seeing if there's potential for a romantic relationship to come out of this. I know that he's looking for a serious relationship for himself, and I also know that since he moved to my city, he hasn't been active with dating, only going out with two women. I think he's a bit shy and just not a fan of dating apps. So... The fact that he never asked me out could either be that he's not interested and only sees me as a friend, or he might be interested in me, but is just not the type to make a move. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd love your advice on two things. First, how do I ask him out in a way that doesn't put him on the spot, isn't awkward if he's not interested, and doesn't affect our friendship? Honestly, I'll be totally fine if he isn't interested and I'm happy to just be friends, and I want to make sure he knows that. Second thing is that during this time of quarantining, um, I obviously don't know when I will be able to see him in person again. So is this the right time to let him know that I'm interested in potentially dating, which I guess would mean going on virtual dates? Or should I be patient and wait for 
the social distancing to be behind us. And in the meantime, continue just chatting as friends. You wonder why he never asked you out, but you already sort of know why he never asked you out. If indeed he's interested in you in that way or potentially interested in you in that way. When you first got to know each other, you were involved. Only a couple of months ago, did you break up with your ex and maybe he didn't want to feel like he was swooping in and now we're all in quarantine and everything's kind of called off or on hold. You should definitely ask him out. The awkwardness that you're worried about, the rejection, the potential rejection, there's always a potential acceptance, but the potential rejection you're worried about, yeah, you just have to brace yourself for that. You have to lean into it. You have to acknowledge the awkwardness. Tell him you've always been attracted to him. You kept it friendly and you kept it professional because he was a work contact and you were involved with somebody else. But now that you're not, you're interested in knowing whether or not he might be interested in getting to know you that way, getting to know you romantically, going out to dinner next time when going out to dinner is a thing and making it a date and see what he says. Worst case scenario. He says, no, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I don't think of you that way. You've misread my signals. You apologize to him for having misread him. And then you say, I hope this doesn't negatively impact our friendship. It's going to be a little bit awkward at first, but we will burn through the awkwardness and keep this friendship because it was the friendship that of course initially led to me feeling attracted to you. And so I obviously value that friendship and I promise I won't be trying in the future to upgrade friendship to romance if the answer is no. But the answer might be yes. And why not now? If you hang back now because we're in quarantine and you want to wait till this is over, it could be a very fucking long time before this is over. And during that very fucking long time until this ends, somebody else might be just about to ask him out. Somebody he may be less interested in, but by the time you get around to asking him out, he could be involved with. And then unable to give you the yes you're hoping to get. Ask him out. Go on virtual dates now. When they begin to lift the social distancing restrictions, maybe then you can go on some actual dates. But at the very least, you'll both have something to look forward to. Hi, Dan. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller from Italy. I'm 24 years old and I've been with my boyfriend, who's 29, for almost two years. Our sex and communication are great. We always talk about our sex life and how we feel and what we've enjoyed, and there's really nothing we can't discuss, except for one thing. We both love anal, me being on the receiving end. And a couple of months ago, we started um, jokingly to talk about me penetrating his ass. He never really said no and even started talking about it, always jokingly, mind you. I've always responded that I'm definitely not against it. And as a matter of fact, I've done it before. But that I would need him to guide me and I would say, quote unquote, teach me. Partly because that really turns me on and because I honestly am not sure what to do with a finger up a man's ass. So one night, uh, we had smoked pot and we were fucking and I proceeded to put a finger up his ass. He didn't stop me, but he also didn't say anything. So me being a little insecure, I took my finger out and we continued as if nothing had happened. We didn't talk about it afterwards and haven't talked about it since. We're not in quarantine together, so my question is, how do I approach asking him whether he liked it or not? I feel maybe it's a shame, even if there's no need to be, and maybe a little, a little bit embarrassed. Also, since we won't be together for God knows how long, because I live in the epicenter of the pandemic and he's in another state, 
Should I maybe wait until we get together? And ultimately, what do you do inside a man's ass? I feel like my fingers are too small to even reach his prostate. Help me then and stay safe. What do I do inside a man's ass? Well, having been inside a few men's butts in my time, there are nerve endings all around the asshole. It can be very pleasurable to have those nerve endings stroked or stimulated. You don't even have to penetrate someone to provide them with a little bit of anal pleasure. You run a luby finger back and forth or around in circles on the outside of someone's anal sphincter. It feels pretty good. If you go inside... Well, a dude has a prostate gland. If you are in front of him and you slip your middle finger up his ass, make the come toward me gesture. That's basically where the prostate gland is. As he becomes more aroused, you can feel it harden and rise before he ejaculates. So if you really want to know where the prostate is, if you want to have a little experimental session with some dude that you're penetrating digitally, just get your fingers in him, get one or two fingers in him, very lubed up with his consent. You do need to ask. You should ask someone before you stick a finger in their butt. And once you're in with his consent, once your fingers are up there, just very gently stroke your fingers and that come toward me gesture while he masturbates and his prostate gland will identify itself to you. It will stand up and salute and then you will know roughly where it is and how to pleasure it. It's just a very gentle kind of, you know, stroking pleasure. You're not trying to slap the prostate around. There's also a huge psychological component to being anally penetrated for many men. Men are supposed to be the penetrators, not the penetratees. Most gay and bi men get past that and enjoy penetration. But for a lot of straight guys, the shame of it, the inversion of roles and expectations is part of the turn-on. The transgression is part of the turn-on. So I don't think you need to get him to a place necessarily where he's completely over his shame. You just need to get him to a place where the shame is contained and corralled in such a way that it is serving your erotic connection. But you got to be able to talk about it. You don't have to eradicate the shame just to be able to talk about it. Because you can talk about like part of what turns him on, if he can articulate it, is the wrongness of it, the delicious wrongness of it. And it's not just people who are into having their butts played with who get to enjoy that delicious wrongness feel. As we've often said, like most kinks at bottom are about some sort of power exchange, some sort of power play. But a lot of them, I think concurrently, a twin root is really this idea of how wrong this is, how deliciously wrong, how naughty, how transgressive. But you got to get him to talk about it. And you have a great opener. Remember that time, honey, I put my finger in your butt? We've never talked about it. Can we talk about it? I enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? I might like to do it again. We've joked about pegging. A lot of people will raise a sexual interest that's a little naughty or transgressive by framing it as something they're just joking about so that if their partner is offended or not into it or judgmental, they can say, oh, I was just kidding. Obviously, he's not just kidding. Obviously, this is something that he would like to do. You're going to have to do what you did already that you've proven that you can do, which is use your words. You're very articulate. There's nothing judgy or shamey about your tone or your line of questioning. You just need to take all of those things that you said to me and those questions you asked me and put them to him and ask them of him. And when it comes to anal penetration, baby steps. You're not going to go from one very wet finger slipped into a butt to slamming in and out of him with a strap-on dildo in 10 minutes. You're really going to have to ramp it up. I would suggest, you know, when you guys can get back together, that keep playing with your fingers, 
maybe enjoy a little bit of our rimming and then get him a butt plug. Butt plugs are great intermediate sex toys, particularly for straight guys who may be wrestling with shame or the transgressiveness of it all because it doesn't look like a dick and you can get it into your ass and then leave it there and he can go back to doing all of the straight guy things during sex, you know, eating your pussy, getting his dick sucked, fucking you while the butt plug just sits there in his ass lurking in wait ready for that moment that he comes while he's doing the straight guy thing and fucking his girlfriend's pussy. And the minute he comes, his anal sphincters begin to contract. The prostate hardens and rises. And this contraction of the anal sphincters, which is part of what helps slam all the ejaculate out of his body, is going to move that butt plug gently back and forth across his prostate. It can be mind-blowing. But to get there, you're going to have to have a conversation with him about it. You say the sex is great. I believe you. You say the communication is great. Okay. I believe you up to a point. But if you can't talk about his butt, particularly after you have digitally penetrated, after all these jokes about pegging, your communication is incomplete. So use your words. And this is a great time to get on the phone and use your words because what else do we have to do? Hello, Dan. This is a long time reader and long time listener. And I must say that it Strangely, you, your podcast was what got me through uh, hospicing my mother, actually. So anyway, I am sheltering in place with my partner of 35 years and we've raised a couple of kids and we have, uh, we have a great relationship. We've always had a very high libido and since the kids are uh, off on their own, empty nesters and all that, we've really gotten our kink on and thanks to you, I've been open to all the things that I'm interested in. It's kind of shocking, actually, that I am, uh, what do they say, kinky as fuck. Anyway, uh, we're having a marvelous time. Just before the pandemic broke and the sheltered home place was ordered, we moved from a small apartment with paper-thin walls into a standalone home with a backyard and, and nice solid walls and even a guest room. So uh, we've got plenty of places to play and plenty of time and space and privacy to do so. So this is actually both a check-in from uh, Quarantine Love Tales. It's also a question. So it turns out that uh, I'm a switch, but my husband's a dom and we're having a great time. The question becomes when I am fully bound and also gagged, how can I communicate things such as uh, safety words to my partner. Uh, I looked online, they said, you know, use a horn or some such or a bell. I think a bell would get lost in the in the ruckus, actually. And I believe a horn just is, it's just tone deaf to what's happening in the room. You're very welcome. I'm very sorry about the, I assume, the passing of your mother. My heart goes out to you. All my sympathy. Uh, this is an easy one to solve. You know, if you've been with somebody for 35 years, you're probably pretty good at reading each other's moods and each other's body language, a lot of the advice about a safe gesture or something that you can do if you're bound and gagged presumes you're with someone that doesn't know you well and you're with someone that you don't know well, but you trust them enough to make you as helpless as that. And the advice typically, I mean, a horn would be ridiculous, a little something like a ball you squeeze that makes a honking sound. Who wants to tie up Harpo Marx? 80-year-old pop culture reference for the kids. Not sexy, not fun. Instead, what people typically do is some sort of grunt pattern, an uh-uh-uh, real quick, means I'm safe wording, or you give the sub something to hold in their hand. Maybe they're restrained, they're tied up, but they have the use of their hands. Their fingers and palms are free, 
And if the sub has a ball in their hand, then they hold on to it. If they drop the ball, that's safe wording. Seems to me that unless you are the kind of kink sub, BDSM sub, who likes to struggle, who likes to look unhappy, who likes to perform, no, 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 please don't, please stop, that you wouldn't necessarily need the ball or the grunt grunt or the gesture, sometimes just shaking one leg or shaking one arm. But if you do, if that's the kind of play you and your husband after 35 years together are getting into, and I think that's so wonderful and what a great example to other callers, particularly callers, couples, who are parents, you have small children in the home, you're stressed out, your sex life is a little rote, there's a lot of maintenance sex and not a lot of passion. Hang in there. It could come roaring back. Most people you meet in organized swinging, for example, are parents with grown children who are just getting into it. And obviously, this caller, 35 years together, two grown children, and kinky as fuck, as the kids say. So if you like to struggle, if you like to look like you're miserable while your husband's doming you, get a ball, agree on a grunt pattern or a gesture. That's your safe word. Thank you for calling and really happy to hear from a couple that's been together as long as you two have, still exploring, doing new things, really killing it. It's a good problem to have, your problem. Most of the couples we hear from are having not so great problems to have. Always refreshing to hear from a couple that's having the opposite problem, the good problem. Hey, Dan, I am a straight male college student in my early 20s, and I have a question about starting a relationship with a particular person. I have a close friend uh, that I have some mutual attraction with. We both talk a lot about the fact that we're attracted to each other. We've even made out a couple times at parties after having a couple drinks. Uh, but there's one particular problem, and that's that she is very religious and not interested in having sex until she's married. Now, I want to preface this by saying that she's in no way a prudish or sex-negative person when it comes to other people. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends who are openly poly and openly LGBTQ and openly kinky, and she's never been judgmental of them, and she even very frequently jokes with our friends about the people they've fucked and people she'd like to fuck. So there's no real sexual negativity I've seen from her. When I've asked her about it, her answer has always been that she believes the Bible calls her, you know, not to have sex before marriage, but she doesn't think it applies to anyone else who doesn't believe in it. The problem here is that I am interested in having sex regularly. I've had sex in all my previous relationships. Um, and I don't know how ethical it is to go into this relationship with the hope that eventually she will be willing to have sex before marriage. I wouldn't be comfortable being in this relationship for more than probably six or nine months without eventually having sex. And because of her general sex positivity for people outside of herself, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that she could become comfortable with that possibility. In fact, we have a very close mutual friend who was raised conservative Muslim and didn't drink or smoke or have sex until she got a boyfriend who did all those things and now she does all those things too. So I'm just on the fence. Is it ethical to go to try and start a relationship with this person who I feel a really strong emotional and physical connection to with the knowledge that if after three months or six months or nine months, she's still not willing to have sex before marriage, I don't feel comfortable staying in that relationship any longer. You're an adult. 
you have certain things that you want out of a relationship, certain expectations that seem perfectly reasonable to me that you might place on a romantic partner. She's an adult. If you inform her about what your expectations would be, what your needs would be from a romantic partner, and she chooses to get involved with you, well, then she's an adult. She gets to make her own choices. You don't want to put her in a position where she's become so emotionally involved or attached to you that she winds up doing something that she, at that point, doesn't want to do, but it's the only way to keep you in her life is to concede that and fuck you in violation of whatever it was that she read in her Bible that was written in lemon juice for her just by God and she had to hold up to a candle. I don't know what it is that she's reading that allows for her to smile on polyamorous relationships and all of her sex-positive, sexually active friends, but tells her she can't, but whatever, that's her own personal interpretation of Sky Daddy's orders for her. But she is an adult, and if she chooses to get involved with you, maybe that's a step she's taking toward letting that go. Also, when people say they're saving it for marriage, define it. Some people mean all of it. No kissing even. The Duggars. Remember the Duggars? Kind of like the Duggars. No kissing, no hand-holding, just sitting next to each other. They're saving all of it. Some people have a much narrower definition of what it is that they are saving, what it is. Some people who are saving it have oral sex, they engage in mutual masturbation, they engage in anal intercourse. All they're saving is vaginal penetration, is PIV, saving that for their husband, for their wedding night, because in their own personal copy of the Bible with the page written in lemon juice just for them by God in secret that they held up to a candle, that's what they're supposed to be doing. That's what God told them to do. So you might want a little bit more clarity from her about what she means by it when she says saving it, you might be more comfortable in that relationship. If PIV is great and you love it, but all these other kinds of sex are just as rewarding. And I think the broader your definition of sex, the more all-encompassing it is, the better of a sex life you're going to have. And maybe you could have that kind of a sex life with her and even in the absence of PIV intercourse. But you're right. There is an ethical issue here. You don't want to back her into a position where she feels obligated where she ends up having sex with you to keep you sex she didn't want to have. But if after six or nine months she agrees to have sex with you and that is the only reason that she's doing it, because you guys are going to continue to talk about this, at that point you can choose not to have sex with her, however it is you two are defining sex. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old bisexual female currently living in the Midwest, but I'll be moving to a smallish town in New England once I graduate which will be in the next couple months. I'm really excited once we're done socially distancing to begin to find and build my sex positive kinky community. I've played a bit with rope in the past and there's so much more I want to explore, but I have a few questions. First and foremost, I'm looking for your advice on how to go about this in the safest way possible. The guy who first introduced me to Rip was so incredible, just truly the best guy. But I know that people can be shitty, and I'm wary of being taken advantage of, especially as a young female who's very new to the scene. I've been put in uncomfortable situations before. I would ask friends to accompany me to clubs or events, but I don't have friends who are interested in or are really comfortable with kink. They're great, but it's just not their thing. Oh, and and also, how do you find these events? I met the guy on an app, but I haven't been so lucky since. I know FetLife is a thing, but I've been a bit overwhelmed trying to navigate those message boards before, and it's hard to tell what's legitimate. 
Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Diana, a founding member and manager of Studio Friction, a rope-centric community space in Denver, Colorado. Hey, Diana, how are you? I'm doing well, Dan. How are you? Really good. Uh, before we get to the specifics of the caller's question, uh, because I think it's instructive, can you tell us how Studio Friction came to be? You created, you helped found, I think, the kind of kink community that the caller is looking for. How did you do that? Yeah, so Studio Friction was kind of born out of a need. Um, Denver Rope Bite was created, I think, seven years ago. Um, and we were initially at the Denver Sanctuary, and we just totally outgrew the space. Um, and so me and three of my friends, or two of my friends, decided, like, let's dive in and see what we can make. Um, we wanted to make a community space that kind of took the pressure off of, like, going to a dungeon, which can be kind of scary, and had events that were less, like, kink-pressured and more... Like, let's get to know each other. Welcome to the community. So it's sort of, you know, people talk about munches, which are these sort of informal coffee clutches for kinksters where you get together at a time where there's no play. It's not a play party. It's more, you know, getting to know each other and informational uh, and, you know, to help people to make their first contact with the kink community. It almost sounds like you've mixed that, you know, Denver Sanctuary kind of play space with the munch and integrated them at Studio Friction. Um, Yeah. We definitely have, uh, we have an event um, every other Sunday, or we were having an event every other Sunday um, called Sunday Dinner, where we would get together and basically just throw a potluck for everybody to come and meet and talk. And you could practice your rope if you wanted to, but you didn't have to. And it was, it is my favorite event that we host. And now during social distancing, we're going to try and do it virtually um, and have an instructor teach cooking and then we can just hang out and chat. So we'll see how that goes. So here's this, the, the caller, you know, she's graduating. She's had a really great first kink experience with someone. Uh, and she wants to get out there and create her own community. It seems to me that if kink is really important to her and this kind of play is really important to her, that she might want to prioritize moving to a place like Denver where the community is established, where she doesn't have to create it from scratch. Absolutely. I think it's uh, a it's a privilege that uh, we have here in Denver that we have such a great community and so many wonderful volunteers that help make it happen. And I also understand like living in a small town where maybe that's just not an option. And that's how you make friends in the kink scene. She's kinky. She's had a great first experience. None of her friends, mm-hmm. you know, she would either would feel comfortable going with her to a kink event or she would feel comfortable going with them to a kink event. You know, that can make you feel self-conscious. Uh, if you feel like a you know vanilla friend is chaperoning you, you want to be with somebody who's got <laughs> some kind of kinky baseline. But the way to, 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 to find those people is to get into the kink scene. It's sort of She doesn't feel comfortable entering the kink scene because she's got no friends there. But the friends that she needs to be comfortable in the kink scene are in the kink scene. And she's just going to have to push past that uh, – that block and push herself outside of her comfort zone momentarily to make those friends and therefore then feel more comfortable in the kink spaces. Absolutely. And I think a really important thing to remember is like everybody in the kink community was that person at some point in time that was terrified to get out, that was scared to go to their first event that maybe didn't have friends that they could go with. Uh, and they, they, we all had to push through that barrier and just kind of finally get our toes wet. You know, I really think that that's true. And sometimes there's this fear for the, the you know, the person who hasn't been to the kink events yet, who is the newbie, that the interest people might take in them when they go to that 
first kink event is just sexual and predatory. And what they don't know, because they haven't experienced it yet, but will once they enter a, you know, a, a safe and responsible and caring kink community, is a lot of what they're going to get is empathy. That, oh, I was in your shoes once. Nobody's born into the kink scene. I was new and nervous just like you. What can I do to help set you at ease? And then you'll also meet people perhaps that you want to play with, who want to play with you. But you're going to meet a lot of people who want to help you get comfortable and make those contacts and and, and be your friend. You know, people have it in their heads. The first time you go into a kink scene, you know, people are going to sneer at you if you don't know what you're doing, if you've never been, if you don't have the right gear. And it's really the opposite mm-hmm. reaction. It's the same, you know, in some ways I'm going to go off now. It's the same pe- fear a lot of people have when they go to the gym for the first time, that the people who go to the gym all the time are going to judge them. And it's not true. If, you know, people go to the gym all the time might look at you because you're using the equipment wrong and they're worried for you and they don't know how to say something. Same thing on the kink scene. If you go in there and you don't know what you're doing, people are going to worry for you, but people aren't unhappy to see you. 100%. Nobody is unhappy to see anyone. And especially if you're doing something incorrectly in the kink scene, like somebody's going to step in and say like, hey, let's talk about how we can do this a little safer and things like that. Um, I think some some really good examples of first events are those munches, um, especially for people under 35. TNG events or the next generation events are really great to kind of make you feel more comfortable with a group of people that are around your same age. Uh, also, classes are fantastic network spots. Uh, go to classes, even if you're maybe not interested in learning that topic, if you just show up, people are going to start noticing you and they're going to start reaching out and they're going to start wanting to know who you are. Last question. One of the things that she raises, she had a great first experience. She knows, though, that there are shitty people out there. And, you know, it's not just kinky people who have to worry about shitty people taking advantage of them. (laughs) But if your kinks really, you know, your sexual interests center around moments of complete helplessness, you're a little more concerned about winding up with somebody who's shitty or taking advantage or a, a, a monster. That is something that people can find in the kink scene. Not that there's no shitty people in the kink scene, but in an organized kink scene, People who reveal themselves to be shitty tend to be shown the door at some point, exiled. In a way, yes. And and that's one of the functions of an organized kink scene. One of the things we want from an organized kink scene is that kind of accountability. Absolutely. So you still have to use your bullshit detectors just because somebody's at the munch or at the party doesn't mean they're a great person. But if they're a regular and they've been going to the munch or the party for a long time and you meet other people they played with who vouch for them, Mm -hmm. that all contributes to the, you know, the likelihood that this is a safe person to play with. The the, the assurances that this person is going to be safe to play with you can find in the organized kink scene. Yeah, and I, I like to tell new people all the time, like find people that like to do what you do. And if you like to receive things or you're the bottom for things, find other bottoms to talk to about that. Or if you're a top, find other tops to talk to about that. Because the best people that are going to be the most knowledgeable about good partners are going to be people that have done those things. Diana, founding member and manager of Studio Friction, rope-centric community space in Denver. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Yeah, thank you for having me, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm calling for some advice on my relationship with one of my partners. I've been married to my husband for 10 years, and we have had an open relationship for the last three. My issue is with my boyfriend, who I have been seeing for about a year and a half now. Until recently, I didn't care to know much about his other romantic relationships. I knew he was seeing at least one other person on a regular basis. 
This other woman is also married, but her husband does not know that she is seeing him. What concerns me about this is not the basic behavior. Knowing about the first woman was not a big problem for me, and I didn't feel it was my business anyway. Recently, though, he and I have opened up a little bit more about the other people that we are both seeing. I learned that he was seeing a few more women that were all married and all cheating on their spouses. What I'm concerned about is whether the fact that he's dating married women exclusively, three to four of whom are having affairs, speaks to his moral fiber, and frankly, whether he's the type of person I want to be spending my time with. Am I overreaching here, or does this pattern say something about him that I should be worried about? It's honestly turned me off of him a little bit, but is that unfair? You know, sometimes people are really trapped in marriages that they can't get out of. Maybe they have kids who have special needs. Maybe there's economic interdependence. It's not always the wife who's economically dependent on the husband. Sometimes the husband's economically dependent on the wife. And sometimes there's a lot that's really wonderful about the marriage. These two are best friends. It's just kind of sexless or the sex never worked. And that married person is, as I like to say, doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. And they are cheating because they tried to have the conversation about openness or their partner is so insecure that they're not able to have that conversation or their partner said no, even though their partner isn't interested in fucking them. Their partner won't give them permission to fuck anybody else. And so they cheat. And sometimes cheating is the least worst option. Sometimes being cheated on is actually in the best interest of the person who is being cheated on, whether they are capable of recognizing it or not. Their spouse gets out there, finds somebody regular and stable who isn't a threat. They get these needs met. They come home. They're happier and more content in their relationship because they don't have to live a sexless life, even if they're in a sexless marriage. I could see that being the case with one of your boyfriends, other girlfriends, but all of your boyfriends, other girlfriends, he's got four women, four women he sees regularly who are married and cheating. It becomes less and less likely the more married cheating women he adds to his stable becomes less and less likely that they're all doing what they need to do to stay married and stay sane. And it looks more like your boyfriend has a thing for married women who are cheating. He's obviously got a collection of married women who are cheating you're the exception. You need to talk to your boyfriend about this. So many of my responses there are getting in the end to, you need to talk to the person that you're fucking about the fucking that you're doing or not doing the fucking that they're doing with other fuckers. You need to talk to your boyfriend about this. If you're uncomfortable being with someone who seeks out married women who are cheating on their husbands without good reason, and you know, four, it sounds like probably at least two of them are unlikely to have good reason. Is that something you're comfortable with? Obviously, it's not. That's why you called. You're not comfortable with it. If he fetishizes this kind of sex, sex with married women where someone is being betrayed, if that's part of the erotic frisson for your boyfriend, if that's something that he's seeking out and you aren't comfortable with that, that's a libido killer for you, well, then you may need to end things with your boyfriend. Hi, Dan. Cisgendered, 24-year-old, bi female living on the East Coast here. I have been in a relationship with my male partner for two years now. It's a great relationship. We have a lot of communication. We love each other, all that good stuff. We've run into a problem with sex drive, though. During times of stress, his sex drive dies to like six feet under the ground, and mine goes through the roof. 
So as you can imagine, during time, the times of coronavirus, his is six feet under the ground right now. So we haven't had sex in like three weeks and I'm kind of dying here. <laughs> Obviously, he's pro-masturbation. He has mentioned that he would happily help me masturbate, but it's not just that he doesn't want PIV sex. It's that he doesn't, he doesn't care for any sexual encounters at all. I think he's you know, struggling with depression right now. And I totally want to respect that. However, I'm struggling with how to respect that and still get intimacy into our relationship because I'm really missing the intimacy that comes from sex. Some results of research, preliminary results, research done at the Kinsey Institute about people's sex lives during this pandemic shows that your boyfriend's reaction is more common. More people in reaction to the stress levels are feeling a little less horny. Some people's libidos are tanking. Others are experiencing a spike. Some people react to stress by getting horny and wanting to just have that release. Others, and they seem to be more numerous, react to stress by having a libido's tank and not really wanting to do anything. You guys are in a relationship. You have to make this relationship work. It seems to me that your boyfriend is trying. He knows that you're horny. He knows that you need some attention and touch. He's offered to help you masturbate. Say yes. Take him up on that. A little assisted masturbation in a long-term relationship, that happens even when there isn't a pandemic. You know, two people are together. They're sexually exclusive, perhaps. One's horny. One's not. Maybe one has a higher libido than the other. And so what do you do? Well, one person obviously is going to masturbate more. Masturbation will be more fun if your partner's willing to have a seat on your face while you rub one out or hold you and play with your tits while you rub one out. And you two can connect and talk about the sex you're going to have later. And your partner really gives you that. And that can be a gift so long as the person who is masturbating, the higher libido person, isn't stewing in resentment before, during, and after the masturbation, so long as you are happy to have this assist, and so long as once it's underway, you don't try to manipulate the person with the lower libido who is there to help you masturbate into having sex with you when they obviously weren't there. The paradox, of course, is you shouldn't try to manipulate your boyfriend. You shouldn't try to upgrade to full sex when someone is providing you with a little masturbatory assistance. But it can be at times the person who didn't want to have sex helping you masturbate catches a groove and becomes horny. They, they catch a groove and suddenly you are having sex. But you have to treat that as the person on the receiving end of the masturbatory assist as a delightful surprise. Don't go in with that expectation. Label that an unrealistic expectation so you're not disappointed if it doesn't happen, but rather delighted if it does. But take yes for an answer. Your boyfriend wants to hold you, wants to talk dirty to you, wants to play with your tits or whatever while you jack off, while you masturbate, while you use that vibrator. Yes, let him, let him do that for you. Hi, Dan. I've got an advice question about an emotionally abusive relationship. My brother and I are best friends, and though we are 10 years apart, we've always had a very special bond that we've maintained over the years, even with a thousand miles between us at one point. We connect on many levels and have been through numerous highs and lows together. He's been married for two years to a woman who's easily the most self-centered person I've ever encountered, read about in books, or even seen in TV and movies. I'm a tolerant person and truly try to see the good in people, but I've yet to find a single redeeming quality in this woman. She hijacks every conversation and turns it on towards herself, no matter the company present or situation. To put it in perspective, I broke my back and shattered my wrist over a year ago, and the physical pain 
though excruciating, paled in comparison to the mental pain I was enduring for months. To this, she responded, I know exactly how you feel. Last year, I was having health issues and feeling bad, too. She openly disrespects both her family and my own. And after disrespecting my parents in front of both my brother and me in my parents' home, I finally called her out on her shit and she stormed out yelling at my brother for not defending her. I was never sure what my brother saw in her, but he seemed happy, which is really all that mattered to me. However, though we never really discussed his relationship, he shared some alarming information with me in September. that was clearly emotional abuse and that seemed to have been going on for a while. I'm familiar with the signs because I was in an emotionally and sometimes physically abusive relationship for years before I left, which ended in a restraining order. I've now never been happier, but I fear for my brother. Our talk in September seemed like a moment of clarity for him, and he started to see the signs as well, but they're still together today. He moved out a month ago, but they still maintain their marriage. He is now starting to realize the severity of his situation, but he's constantly doubting himself, which I know is another sign of emotional abuse. The parallels between her and my ex-boyfriend's behavior are astonishing. My brother has become a shell of himself as a result of this relationship. We currently live 300 miles away from each other, and he's coming to visit me soon, which I know helped me when I was preparing to leave my abuser. And I know I need to talk to him about it, but I don't know how. My question is, how do I help my brother without telling him what to do? Things seem to be trending in the way that you would like them to trend. Your brother has moved out. He's separated from his wife and sounds to me like your brother is psychologically preparing to end this marriage. This visit when he comes to see you could be a big part of that. You could be a, a, a piece of that. You say you don't want to tell your brother what to do. I don't know what school of siblings you went to, but the school of siblings I went to were constantly telling each other what to do. It's something that you rely on your siblings for, to give you their unvarnished opinion and sometimes to just Fucking order you around. Like, what are you doing? This is so stupid. You need to do X, Y, and Z. You need to stop doing A, B, and C. Do this. Do that. My brother has said that to me. I have said that to my brothers. We've all said that to my sister. That's what siblings do. It's what siblings are for. You reach a place in adulthood where you kind of stop confiding in your parents and seeking advice and counsel from your parents. And if you're lucky enough to have siblings – you start receiving that kind of advice and counsel and seeking it out if you have a tight relationship with your siblings, as you and your brother do. Seek it out from your siblings. You rely on it from your siblings. So yeah, let him come and stay with you. Let him talk. Listen to him. Ask him questions. You're either going to get to a point in the conversation where he asks you what you think he should do, or you're going to get to a point in the conversation where it feels right to tell him what you think he should do. And you're right. People in abusive relationships sometimes have a difficult time recognizing that they're in an abusive relationship or admitting to themselves that they're in an abusive relationship because that process can be humiliating, particularly if you've had family that warned you off a person for a long time and you told your family to go fuck themselves. You told them they were wrong about this person. And then you gradually realize over time that your family was right all along. Having to go back to your family and admit that they were right and you were wrong is not easy. That could be a part of the dynamic, but a more important part of the dynamic might be that your brother, particularly if he's on the receiving end of abuse in an opposite sex relationship, had a difficult time recognizing what was going on. If you were in an abusive relationship in the past, you walking him through your relationship, the patterns and the similarities could help open his eyes. It might be part of the reason why he's coming to see you, coming to visit you. 
because he wants to have that conversation with you. He obviously knows how you feel about his wife. You had that big blow up where you read her at your parents' house. And so he's not coming expecting that you're going to talk him into getting back together with the wife. He's coming knowing that you're going to tell him what it is that he needs to do. And if, in your opinion, what he needs to do is leave this woman, you should tell him. We're going to take a quick break from your calls for a virtual book tour appearance. Joellen Nadi is a writer, speaker, and author of the new book, The Monster Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having. And Joellen, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. You're, you're a writer. I admire. I follow you on Twitter. Uh, I enjoy your stuff. And I saw that your book had just come out and then your book tour got canceled like everything else got canceled. And I wanted to in- invite you on the show for you know a virtual bookstore appearance so that people would know about your book and could find out about your book uh, and get online and order your book. So tell us about The Monster Under the Bed. The Monster Under the Bed is a book I've been working on for five years. Um, I am, in addition to being a sex writer, I'm someone who has uh, dealt with depression for about half of my life now. And I started... Uh, you know, when you first start writing about sex, you tell everybody everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And in my first year, I had a bad experience with an antidepressant where it took away my ability to orgasm. And I wrote about it because I was writing about everything. And that was when I learned people who weren't my mom were reading my, my writing because <laughs> I got this deluge of emails. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a real, it's a real problem. And it's, a, it's particularly a problem because so often when people's libidos are tanked by the, the meds they need to treat their depression, their physicians don't take that seriously and don't prioritize tweaking their meds to find the med that works for the depression without tanking the libido. It comes up a lot on my show. Yeah, it's um, it's a big thing. And so many people pair, like mentally, they have this um, idea that depression means you don't have sex. Depressed people don't want to have sex anyway. And so they just kind of accept that. And what I found in the, the surveys for this book is that that was not necessarily true. And a lot of people maybe didn't have their libido, but they wanted to have it. And it's a, a more complex issue than we tend to think of it as. That's a, that's a terrific way of saying it. They wanted to have it. You know, a lot of people out there who don't have a libido, it's not like they forget sex exists. They remember it. They miss it. They want to want it. But how do you make that leap from, you know, wanting to want it to actually wanting it? And an important distinction we made uh, in, I think, the second round of interviews for the book was the difference between, like, your your sexual impulses were gone entirely, you had no interest in sex, and you kind of thought, oh, sex, that sounds nice, but... God, getting up, taking off my clothes, like that thing that depression does where everything sounds too difficult and not worth it. Mm-hmm. And looking at the difference between those two things kind of helps the people we talk to make kind of conscious sexual decisions instead of saying, well, I, I don't have sex because I have depression. Another way depression impacts relationships, and this comes up a lot on the show. There's weeks we could do nothing but questions uh, about <laughs> people who have depressed partners and they want to leave the relationship and they don't feel that they can because they don't want to abandon their depressed partner uh, to their depression or make their depression worse, but they know the relationship is over. Do you address that in the book? I talk a bit, um, I talk about it a bit more specifically on, in the terms of, you know, not everybody can do a relationship with somebody who's dealing with depression. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a lot to take on. And that if, if you don't think you can, it's probably healthier for all of you if you break off the relationship because it's just a lot of, you're going to end up resenting each other so much Mm -hmm. 
that it will make everything worse. So I think if you're in that position, it's time to have a like not fun, but important conversation about how staying is actually not the helpful thing. Right. And it doesn't have to be about like, I'm abandoning you to your depression, but it can be a a thoughtful way to kind of give somebody what they need to take care of. You know, I think sometimes the reason so many people have a hard time ending a relationship that needs to end is that a lot of us have it in our heads that the end of a relationship has to be high conflict, that there has to be, you know, a <laughs> causes belli and then there has to be a big fight and they don't want to go through that or put their partner through that if their partner is feeling vulnerable or, or depressed. And what people, we have no models for like the loving end of a relationship, loving someone, even as you part from them and still being there for them in the ways that you can, uh, while exiting the relationship, while, you know, disengaging from the, the more serious long-term commitment, while still, you know, coming through for them in other ways like a friend would. And maybe, you know, the the position that you're in when you're leaving someone who has depression is you have to sort of get to that place where your friend's a little faster than you might. Because often when you end a relationship and you want to be friends in the future, it's six months or a year off. You don't see each other for a while. You take your time away. But if someone, you know, may need your help making sure they've got their meds or getting to an appointment that you're leaving, still doing those things for that person even after the relationship's over right away is a way to love somebody out of the relationship. Exactly. And, I mean, the flip side of that is I think it's important to have really clear uh, boundaries and discussions about what you need in in that, like, separating because you might find it actually is harder to stay in touch, Right. Somebody might need that that complete break from you, or they might need you to help support them and get through this. And so I, I think a lot of times we don't kind of have the explicit conversations about these things. And once we have them, we actually know a lot more what people need of us, and then we can meet those needs accordingly. So you'd been writing a lot about sex and depression uh, before you began the book. Uh, what did you learn about depression and sex while you were writing the book that you didn't know before? The first round of uh, surveys I did, we did not leave any space for any impact on one sex life that wasn't um, less sex, right? So when I did the first round of interviews after the survey, 25% of the people were like, yeah, I have more sex when I'm depressed. And I was not prepared for that at all. Why Why do you think that is? So the reasons differed. For some people, it was literally that's, you know, that's how I connect. That's how I you know, feel in touch with my partner and it makes me feel better. For some people, it was, I feel miserable and hate the way I look. And so I go out to have sex to get validation. There was a whole range of reasons. Some of it was uh, medication related because there is one medication that rather than tanking the libido, for some people, it spikes it. And so they would get on this medication and go out and have more sex. Wait, and the name of that medication is that people are going to want to know. Well, the thing is, it is Wellbutrin. What we found with people is that, you know, some people, the uh, they would get a little um, more anxiety, a little like manic to their thing because Wellbutrin kind of lifts you up rather than a lot of the meds kind of just even you out. Mm-hmm. So it, it's something to be careful about and definitely not a reason to switch to Wellbutrin if your meds are already working, but it is something to be aware of. I wanted to ask you about something not about depression. You describe yourself as an introvert, uh, and I am an introvert too. And yet, we both write about sex or and talk about sex, which is not something people associate with 
introverts. It's interesting because, you know, I write about sex. I'm non-monogamous. I go to sex conferences. These are all things that make people think like you're going to be like, woo, jumping on the table. But what it is for me is it's that after I'm around people a bunch, I need alone time to recharge. And for me, socializing is draining. And I think we have this idea that introversion means, you know, you, you hide in your house a lot. And you don't like being around people. But for a lot of us, it just means that the way our batteries recharge is a bit different. So I can do all the going out in the world and all the sex and all the things. But then I need to come home and not talk to people for a day or two. I'm the I'm the hide in the house style of introvert. <laughs> I don't like to go to the conferences. Uh, everything else I enjoy. I don't like to go to the conferences. And I do find parties very draining. Because um, I have both the introversion and the depression. We play a fun game of like, why am I hiding in my house now in my house? Which is like, you know, am I depressed or am I just worn out from people? I'm not sure. And then we have to check in. <laughs> There's another idea that, that, that you talk about that I love, which is having casual sex kindly. A lot of people have difficulty with being kind and considerate with casual sex partners because they don't want their casual sex partner to get the wrong idea that they might be interested yeah. in a relationship. So people are... Instead of just saying that I'm not in a relationship, but I like you and I want it like this to be good, they are like pushing and pulling at the people they're having casual sex with, pulling them toward them for the sex and pushing them away in other ways and making them feel discarded so they don't get the wrong idea. Can can you talk about that? How do you have casual sex kindly? What's your advice for people around kind casual sex? Something I noticed about this was people were like treating the people they were sleeping with worse than they were treating strangers all in the name of like not getting the wrong idea. Right. And it kind of, right. It kind of snapped for me when I heard a guy say, you know, she said something about a relationship and we don't have a relationship. This isn't a really, and I was like, dude, you have a relationship with everyone you interact with. I have a relationship with my, bar like my barista <laughs> and the guy across the hall. It's the nature of that relationship. I have a relationship <laughs> with my postman. It's a high conflict Un unpleasant relationship, but it's still a relationship. <laughs> it's the same with that expression, friends with benefits. Like the, yeah. the most important word there is friend. The reason that friend. first friend. and be, yet people yeah. will, you know, say we're, we're FWBs and then they will be unfriendly to their friend with benefits. So their friend with benefits doesn't get the wrong idea. Yeah. It, for me, a lot of it was born out of a relationship in my twenties where we slept together for months and every time the guy would like mid sex be like, just so you know, this doesn't mean anything. And I was like, dude, I, I get that. And also like, it, you know, I'm on board in the same way, but it's kind of mean to like mid sex tell me, you know, I'm inferior for some reason. And I think what people, again, it's that issue of not having the conversations and not communicating and not getting on the same page. Because I think if you lay it out at the beginning and say, you know, this is what I want from this, this is what I can give you, and then check in on that occasionally, it's going to be a much kinder way to do things that keeps you all on the same page. So you're not constantly like, oh my God, he's going to think the wrong thing unless I'm mean to him right now. You know, the epiphany for me arrived many years ago. I think before I started uh, writing about sex and relationships or doing savage love when I, you know, saw somebody at the gym that I'd had sex with and we kind of didn't look at each other and didn't say hello. And it was just, you know, obviously neither of us were interested in, in getting back together again, you know, in hooking up or dating or uh, again, but it just felt so crazy that we couldn't be nice to each other for fear that one or the other of us would walk away from that interaction with the wrong idea. 
And eventually, you know, I saw the guy at the gym a few times and we just walked up to him and said, hey, you ate my ass. I remember you. And and we can <laughs> right. like be kind to each other at the gym and smile without, you know, you having to worry that I'm going to show up on your front porch with a, an engagement ring. Yeah, I tell people, like, I promise if you treat somebody like a human being, they will not automatically decide that you want them to have your baby. Like, it's it's cool. Just talk to each other. The ability, the ability some people have to, to have sex with someone and be rude to that person at the same time is, <sighs> is, is staggering. <laughs> and, and there's a kind of narcissism yeah. at play there where if I risk being nice to you, then you will imprint on me like a duckling. I'll never be rid of you because I'm so awesome that of course you're going to fall in love with me if I am just kind. So I have to be a dick while we're having sex so that you don't fall in love with me because I'm yeah, awesome. Yeah, I knew it was an issue when I – like I caught myself once thinking like, dude, do you know how much better I could do than you? And I thought, well, this is not a, like, this is not a healthy thought pattern for either of us to be having. But yeah, it was kind of like, don't flatter yourself, dude. I, like, yeah. So where can, where can listeners who want to know more about your book and find more of your work about sex and depression specifically find that? Uh, so my, all of my work, uh, or most of my work lives at my website, redheadbedhead.com. Uh, for information on my book, including most of the places that are carrying it, new people keep adding it. But um, I have a listing on my site at redheadbedhead.com slash monster. And literally all the work I've ever done on sex and depression is, again, redheadbedhead.com slash depression. So, and all of that stuff is there. So uh, introvert to introvert, how are you holding up? How are you coping right now during the pandemic while we're all supposed to be isolating ourselves? which is easier for introverts or harder for introverts. Right. I keep saying this to people and I think I'm freaking people out because it, it sounds super dark, but I have been in a like near apocalyptic depression episode for about the last year or so. And so I just feel like I've been in training for this. I have been preparing. I am ready. And the part that has been hard for me is as much as I feel like I've been isolating and hiding in my house the last year, I would still go to Pilates. I would still see my neighbors when we walked our dogs. And now we're not getting that. I have one coffee truck near my house that's open and we go and talk to them for five minutes every day just to not kind of lose our minds. But it's on one hand, super easy for me because I'm used to it. On the other hand, it's really made me appreciate the social connectivity I have in my life typically. And hopefully we'll all have in our lives again soon. Joella Nadi, yeah. writer, speaker, author of The Monster, Under the Bed, Sex, Depression, and the Conversations We Aren't Having. Go to redheadbedhead.com for more information about her book and her work. And uh, please pick up her book. And thank you so much for, for dropping in today for this little book tour. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Gay guy on the East Coast here. I started dating a guy, and about four weeks in, the lockdown happens. Full quarantine, everyone's staying at home. The first weekend of that particular moment, if we're a few weeks in, we did stay together. But since then, he's been at his place. I've been at my place. We're going on like six weeks apart or so. I think. I don't know what time is anymore. I just, here's the thing. I don't miss him. Is that weird? I feel like I should miss him. And I don't know if he misses me because we really haven't reached out to each other in like three or four weeks. We're I'm like letting this go, right? Like I'm okay to do that, right? Like I'm not 
or is this one of those things? Maybe I should have this conversation with him. It's one of those things of like, hey, are we just done during this whole quarantine and maybe we'll try again? Or are we just done? I don't know. Am I the only one finding that? That I don't miss him? Like, is that weird? I don't miss him. If you could take or leave someone, it's usually a sign that you should leave them. We talked earlier on the show about mutual masturbation. This sounds like a little simultaneous ghosting. You haven't been reaching out to him. He hasn't been reaching out to you. It's not like you are ignoring his texts. Not like he's ignoring your text. You've both just let go of the other. Maybe you owe it to him or you owe it to each other to send one last text. This is obviously this kind of wound down, perhaps because of the pandemic and the quarantine. It's nice to get to know you. Wish you well in the future. You can put that kind of capstone on it. I think that's a good idea because even in a huge city like New York, I think especially in a huge city like New York, you're always running into people that you know and people that you've dated. The odds that you will bump into this guy on the street in the future or on the subway or in a gay bar once we have subways and streets and gay bars again are pretty high. And you don't want that moment to be supremely awkward. So a little graceful, compassionate, I hope you're doing well. Obviously, things sort of wound down and we weren't meant to be. Wish you well in the future. You can end it in a way so that when you inevitably run into each other, when you're with your next boyfriend or he's with his next boyfriend, it won't be as awkward as it could be. But yeah, if you don't miss it, he obviously doesn't miss you. It's over. Hey, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old cis bisexual woman and have been dating a cis heterosexual 30-year-old man for four months now. We've had an incredible emotional and physical connection in this short amount of time, one I've never felt so strongly before. In the little amount of time we've had together, he has expressed his adoration for and commitment to me long term. I'm a very independent, adventurous woman and do not let myself fall quickly or easily. However, I've done just that. The reason I'm calling is to gain some insight and to get your advice on something that has been troubling me. I have never been with someone or attracted to a man who's so feminine. And by feminine, I mean he takes longer to get ready than me. He worries about looking good in photos and is constantly stressing over his hair and looks, which if you ask me, he's always looking so damn fly. And I tell him that all of the time. And then there was that one time when he kissed one of my cis heterosexual guy friends one drunken night at the bar right next to me. This was a point of contention for me and for us. I asked him a few times about it and asked him why he felt compelled to kiss him. And all he could say was that he didn't know why and that he's only ever been attracted to women and has never felt compelled to be with a man. I have concerns about him being possibly closeted and the very real possibility that he may not even yet realize or have yet to fully accept this about himself. He's assured me a few times now that again, he has only ever been attracted to women and that he is wildly attracted to me, which he has made very clear. I know without a doubt that he is attracted to me. I've told him several times that whether he identifies as bisexual, heterosexual, or gay, any of it, I would accept and respect him. From day one, I've been very open about being bisexual myself. Even though I've never been with a bisexual man before, I'd like to think that I would be open to it. If I wasn't, 
wouldn't that be hypocritical? I don't want to keep pushing him to come out if he isn't even in the closet to begin with. My gut keeps telling me that there's something there, though. And this is uncharted territory for me. I get the feeling that I may be the problem here. I'm not the biggest fan of his obsession over his looks, but I love that he wakes up early to make me breakfast and can cry in front of me when he really feels strongly about something. I believe the parts that make him more feminine in many ways are the parts that make me so attracted to him. And I'm a fairly masculine woman, which only makes this all the more silly. Am I just feeding into gender stereotypes, forcing my feelings about this man on this man, worrying too much about what society thinks, or are my insecurities and gut responses to our relationship deep-seated in my partner actually being closeted? If I do eventually decide to settle down with this man, will I wake up to a Frankie and Grace situation one day, all cute and gray-haired? How does one know these things? Am I an asshole? Am I alone here? So this guy that you like and who likes you and who's crazy about you, super attracted to you, and I assume eats the shit out of your pussy because you would have mentioned that if he didn't, you've told him that you're okay if he's bi and that he should come out to you, but you just spent, I don't know, seven or eight minutes telling me that you are not okay if he is bi. And you worry your worst case scenario, your long-term worry is that you may wind up married to this guy and then he's going to come out as bi. Pick one. You're okay with this guy being bi or you're not okay with this guy being bi. And also, you know, we got to pick one with this thing we're constantly telling straight guys that we don't want them to be so paranoid about being perceived to be gay or bi. We don't want them to be so paranoid about homosocial contact. He kissed a guy. He kissed a cis straight male friend of yours as a joke, as a lark, because he had an impulse. He kissed a boy and he liked it that one time. Maybe he's a little hetero flexible around the edges. He's comfortable with a little homosocial contact. He's also comfortable with the idea of himself as a sex object. He's, you know, obviously very much into his appearance and takes longer to get dressed and turned out than you do. And a lot of straight guys throw their looks away or don't primp or spend one minute thinking about how they present themselves because that seems like something women and faggots do and they don't want to be perceived to be effeminate or faggot it. And so they don't do that. And we slam straight boys for that often. You know, they're so paranoid about being perceived to be gay that they can't allow themselves to do anything that a gay guy might do. You know, have a feeling, let somebody touch their nipples, go to a musical once we can start doing those sorts of things again. I mean, go to musicals. If you're all locked home alone in quarantine, touch the shit out of your nipples. What else are you going to do all day? Go for it. So it seems to me that, you know, you as a masculine presenting woman are being a little unfair to this guy who sounds like a pretty decent match for you and a pretty good partner for you because he is in some ways not feminine presenting, but has some feminine characteristics, the kind of characteristics that, you know, once a gay guy stops policing himself for any evidence that he might be a gay guy, gay guys allow themselves to do, you know, be concerned about their appearance, do the occasional sit up, get a decent haircut, take a few minutes to pluck their eyebrows, whatever it is. You know, once you're no longer worried that people might think you're gay because you've told everyone that you're gay, you become less paranoid about people spotting you doing that. And here you have like a guy who might be straight or might be a little bit bi who's allowing himself to do all those things and you're going to run from him. Look, be honest with him. If you are not okay with him being bi, tell him because the last thing he should want if he is bi 
is a little bit bi is to partner with someone who's going to be shitty to him about that for the rest of his life. He may deserve better than you, but I would challenge you to really think about your worst case scenario here. Just because he might want to put a dick in his mouth at some point in his life, if indeed that is something that he would like to do, and we do not know that, how terrible would that be? For you, like your worst case scenario, you, you cite Frankie and Grace where their husbands leave them for each other. Their husbands run off with each other. And that's not the guy I'm with is bi. That's the guy I'm with is gay. Those are gay guys who come out late in life and jilt their female partners that they knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or subconsciously misrepresented themselves to. If you go to him and say, look, I need to know if you're bi and I am not okay if you're bi, he's likely to lie to you about the fact that he is bi if indeed he's bi. So you've really painted yourself into a corner here. This is a trap that you have set for yourself because you want him to be honest with you, but you've disincentivized being honest with you. You've made being honest with you impossible if he wants to continue on in this relationship. If he's a listener too, I would encourage him if he is bi to end this relationship. There's a lot of negative mental health outcomes that have been demonstrated in studies for bi guys who are partnered with people who don't want to be with bi guys, who don't celebrate their sexual orientation. That doesn't mean you have to celebrate him putting dicks in his mouth. If you're in a monogamous relationship and you want a monogamous commitment, bi guys are capable of making and honoring monogamous commitments, but to be with someone where you're constantly under suspicion, where you're worried about being outed to that person or accidentally outing yourself to that person, nobody needs that kind of pressure or stress. So boyfriend, if you are listening, she might be the wrong girl for you. And there's a girl out there for you who would appreciate the ways in which you're comfortable with homosocial contact, the way you're comfortable with, you know, fussing over your appearance, the ways in which you are more sort of feminine in the cliche gendered sense than masculine. This might not be her, but call her. I would challenge you to get okay with those things. You sound like a pretty good match. And honestly, it sounds like your worst case scenario that he might be by isn't that terrible. Maybe it's something that you would actually come to enjoy in time. Maybe scoping boys together, even if he never fucks a boy with you, is something you enjoy. Who knows? Maybe some MMF three ways are in your future. That would be super fucking hot if he's by, which he might not be. But if he is, how terrible would that be? You're a little mask. He's a little femme. You enjoy each other. You have a great connection. You have a great sex life. Sounds like you should run with this and get the fuck over your sort of anticipatory biphobia, your preemptive biphobia, your worries that he might not be who he says that he is. And hopefully every time he eats the fuck out of your pussy proves that he is. Straight enough for you. All right, before I get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. V Verdur tweets, almost every time I type social distancing, I accidentally hit F instead of D. And oh man, social fistancing really makes your mind wander. Yeah, hmm, other F for D substitutions that can make the mind wander. We're going to go meet with the regional distributor to serve with fistinction, the welcome fistraction. There's been a disturbance in the force. I could go on, but the look on Nancy's face tells me I shouldn't. Jay Rochelle tweets, Hey, at fake Dan Savage, when you say you need a better word for vaginal secretions, allow me to suggest gruel, girl drool. The name has its own subreddit and everything. 
All right. Well, if Girl Drool, Gruel, G-R-O-O-L, has its own subreddit, who am I to argue with that? But your neologism has a homonym problem. Gruel, G-R-U-E-L, two syllables defined by Merriam-Webster, the only dictionary with a decent drag name, as a thin porridge. Gruel entered the English language in the 14th century, according to Merriam-Webster. It's never used as a compliment. No one wants to be served gruel. So I'm just going to reject this one on behalf of the ladies out there. Out of hand, subreddit, be damned. And finally, Alicia Spear tweets, It's been seven weeks since I listened to the Savage Lovecast because my anxiety has been through the roof during the pandemic. But I just listened to episode 705 and I feel like I'm coming home. Ugly tears. Thank you, Dan Savage and Nancy. You are welcome, Alicia. And it's great to have you back. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 705, where the woman called to say that her and her significant other would break up and get back together frequently. I'm a therapist, and I do therapy with couples. And my rule for couples is that they are not allowed to say they are breaking up with each other unless they are actually breaking up with each other. It's a common thing, and it's very toxic to a relationship. The only time you should be telling somebody that you're breaking up with them is if you're actually breaking up. If you're very frustrated with them, then tell them that you're frustrated, overwhelmed, angry, anxious, but no more breaking up and getting back together. Hey, Dan, this is a response to the call in episode 705 about the trans lady on the scooter. I live in D.C. and I recently found out about the existence of a trans woman here who identifies as a sissy princess. She's known for scooting around D.C. and harassing men for money. She then posts screenshots of her Venmo on social media, bragging about all of the money she gets from men, saying that she's a findom. I'm assuming that she's involving these men unconsentingly in her financial domination kink, much as she had with this woman. She also claims on her social media that she uses this money she gets from men to pay tribute to other femdoms because she believes in female supremacy. When I heard the call, I immediately thought that this has to be the same woman, and I wanted to call in to give this woman a little bit more context around her experience and let her know that this lady on the scooter isn't an asshole only to women, but also to men. Hey, Dan, I just heard you say that there was no um, synonyms for vaginal secretions, and I was immediately came to my head pussy juice, and then I couldn't get beyond that, but I went to the Urban Thesaurus and found a few more maiden oil. The flange batter, <laughs> pussy liquor, pussy nectar, juice de vagine, milk juice, oh my goodness, pootie tang, uh, pussy fountain, and <laughs> I can't even say some of these. Okay, thanks for the show. It's always fun. Take care of yourself in these times. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Better than calling, you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. My Dirty Little Film Festival Hump is going to be streaming online from May 9th through June 12th 
hosted by me. We got permission from the filmmakers to show their films online, and we'll have the 15th annual festival up and ready to view from the comfort of your living room, your bedroom, wherever you like to watch. I'll be there to introduce the show and then take you straight to all the great, dirty movies in this year's Hump Fest. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the trailer, check out the lineup, and choose the date and time that works for you, including additional shows for Hump fans in Europe. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Joe Ellen Nottie on Twitter at Joe Ellen Nottie, N-O-T-T-E. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading. Everybody, please stay safe.